Chapter Twenty Four of In the Mayor's Parlor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Behind the panel. Despite the admonitions of the presiding magistrate and the stern voices of sundry officials posted here and there about the court, a hubbub of excited comment and murmur broke out on Creven Crood's dramatic announcement. Nor was the excitement confined to the public benches and galleries. Round the solicitor's table there was a putting together of heads and an exchange of whisperings. On the bench itself, crowded to its full extent, some of the magistrates so far forgot their judicial position as to bend towards each other with muttered words and knowing looks. Suddenly, from somewhere in the background, a strident voice made its tones heard above the commotion. "'He knows. Let him tell what he knows. Let's hear all about it.' "'Silence!' commanded the chairman. "'If this goes on, I shall have the court cleared. "'Any further interruption?' "'He interrupted himself, glancing dubiously at Creven. "'I think you would be well advised.' "'I want no advice,' retorted Creven. "'Simon had been at his elbow, anxious and pleading for the last minute. "'He, it was very evident, was sorely concerned by Creven's determination to speak.' I claim my right to have my say at this stage, and I shall have it. All this has gone on long enough, and I don't propose to have it go on any longer. I had nothing to do with the murder of Wallingford, but I know who had, and I'm not going to keep the knowledge to myself now that things have come to this pass. You'd better listen to a plain and straightforward tale, instead of to bits of story here and bits of story there." The chairman turned to those of his brother magistrates who were sitting nearest to him, and after a whispered consultation with them and with the clerk, nodded, not over-graciously, at the defiant figure in the dock. "'We will hear your statement,' he said. "'You had better go into the witness-box and make it on oath.' Creven moved across to the witness-box with alacrity, and went through the usual formalities as only a practised hand could. He smiled cynically as he folded his fingers together on the ledge of the box and faced the excited listeners. "'As there's no one to ask me any questions, at this stage anyway, I'd better tell my story in my own fashion,' he said. "'And to save time and needless explanations, let me begin by saying that, as far as it went, all the evidence your worships have heard from the police, from Louisa Speck, from Dr. Pellery, from Spizey and his wife, from everybody, I think, is substantially correct. Entirely correct, I might say, for I don't remember anything that I could contradict. The whole thing is, what does it lead up to? In the opinion of the police to identifying me with the actual murder of John Wallingford and my brother there with being accessory to the crime. The police, as usual, are absolutely and entirely at fault. I did not kill Wallingford, and accordingly my brother could not be an accessory to what I did not do, and never had the remotest intention of doing. Now you shall hear how circumstantial evidence brought to a certain point is of no value whatever if it can't be carried past that point. Hawthwaite has got his evidence to a certain point, and now he's up against a blank wall. He doesn't know what lies behind that blank wall. I do, and I'm the only person in this world who does. 
Now, listen to a plain, truthful, unvarnished account of the real facts. On the evening of the day before Wallingford's murder, I was in the big saloon at Bull's Snug between half-past six and seven o'clock. Mallet came in, evidently in search of somebody. It turned out that I was the person he was looking for. He came up to me and told me that his wife was away and that he was giving a little dinner-party to my brother Simon and to Coppinger. They were already at his house, and he and they were anxious that I should join them. Now, I knew quite enough of my brother Simon, and of Coppinger, and of Mallet himself, to know if they wanted my company it was with some ulterior motive, and being a straightforward man I said so there and then. Mallet admitted it. They had, he said, a matter of business to propose to me. I had no objection, and I went with him. What the girl, Louisa Speck, has told you about what happened after I entered the bank-house is quite correct. She's a reliable and a good witness, and gave her evidence most intelligently. She took me up to Mallet's dressing-room, showed me where I could get what I wanted, and left me to make my toilet. I helped myself to clean linen, and I have no doubt whatever that the handkerchief which I took from one of the drawers which the girl had opened for me was that of Dr. Wellesley's, of which we have heard so much in this case. I say, I have no doubt whatever about that. In fact, I am sure of it. Having made my toilet, I went downstairs and joined my host and his other guests. We had a glass or two of Mallet's excellent sherry, and in due course we dined, dined very well indeed. When dinner was over, Mallet got up some of his old port, and we settled down to our business talk. I very quickly discovered why I had been brought into it. What we may call the war between Wallingford as leader of the Reform Party and the town trustees as representatives of the old system had come to a definite stage, and Mallet, Coppinger, and my brother Simon realized that it was high time they opened negotiations with the enemy. They wanted, in short, to come to terms, and they were anxious that I, as a lawyer, as a man thoroughly acquainted with the affairs of the borough, and as a former official of high standing, should act as intermediary, or ambassador, or go-between, whatever you like to call it, in the matter at issue between them and Wallingford. Of course I was willing. Mallet acted as chief spokesman, in putting matters plainly before me. He said that Wallingford, since his election as mayor of Hathelsborough, had found out a lot, a great deal more than they wished him to know. He had accumulated facts, figures, statistics. He had contrived to possess himself of a vast amount of information, and he was steadily and persistently accumulating more. There was no doubt whatever, said Mallet, as to what were the intentions of Wallingford and his party. Though up to then, Wallingford's party did not know all that Wallingford knew. There was to be a clean sweep of everything that existed under the town trustee system. The town trustees themselves were to go. All pensions were to be done away with. All secret payments and transactions were to be unearthed and prohibited for the future. The entire financial business of the town was to be placed in the care of the corporation. In short, everything was to be turned upside down and the good old days to cease. That was what was to happen if Wallingford went triumphantly on his way. But it was the belief of Mallet, and of Coppinger, and of my brother Simon, that Wallingford's way could be barred. How? 
Well, all three believed that Wallingford could be bought off. They believed that Wallingford had his price, that he could be got at, that he could be squared. All three of them are men who believe that every man has his price. I believe that myself, and I'm not ashamed of voicing my belief. Every man can be bought, if you can only agree on a price with him. Now, the town trustees knew that Wallingford had ambitions. They knew what some of his ambitions were, and of one in particular. They proposed to buy him in that way, and they commissioned me to see him privately and to offer him certain terms. The terms were these. If Wallingford would drop his investigations and remain quiet for the remaining period of his mayoralty, the town trustees would agree to the making and carrying out of certain minor reforms, which should be engineered by and credited to Wallingford, in order to save his face with his party. Moreover, they would guarantee to Wallingford a big increase in his practice as a solicitor, and they would promise him their united support when a vacancy arose in the parliamentary representation of Hathelsborough, which vacancy, they knew, would occur within the year as the sitting member had intimated his intention of resigning. Now, this last was the big card that I was to play. We all knew that Wallingford was extremely desirous of parliamentary honours, and that he was very well aware that with the town trustees on his side, he would win handsomely whoever was brought against him. I was to play that card for all it was worth. So then, the proposal was, Wallingford was to draw off his forces, and he was to be rewarded, as I have said. Not a man of us doubted that he would be tempted by the bait and would swallow it. Brent leaped to his feet and flung a scornful exclamation across the court. "'Then not a man of you knew him,' he cried. "'He'd have flung your bribe back into the dirty hands that offered it.' But Crevin Crood smiled more cynically than ever. "'That's all you know, young man,' he retorted. "'You'll know more when you're my age.' "'Well,' he continued, turning his back on Brent and again facing the bench, "'that was the situation.' I was to act as ambassador, and if I succeeded in my embassy, I was to be well paid for my labor. "'By the town trustees?' inquired the chairman. "'By the town trustees, certainly,' replied Crevin. "'Who else? As my principals?' "'I think you will have to tell us what fee or payment you were to have,' interrupted the chairman. "'If—oh, as the whole thing's come to nothing, I don't mind telling that,' said Crevin. I shall never get it now, so why not talk of it? I was to have a thousand pounds. As a reward for inducing the mayor to withhold from the public certain information which he had acquired as regards the unsatisfactory condition of the borough finances, asked the chairman. Yes, if you put it that way, assented Crevin. You might put it another way, as regards the mayor. He was to just let things slide. "'Go on, if you please,' said the chairman dryly. "'We understand.' "'Well,' continued Crevin cheerfully, "'we settled my mission over Mallet's port. "'The next thing was for me to carry it out. "'It was necessary to do this immediately. "'We knew that Wallingford had carried his investigations "'to such an advanced stage "'that he might make the results public at any moment. "'Now I did not want anyone to know of my meeting with him, I wanted it to be absolutely secret. But I knew how to bring that about. Wallingford spent nearly every evening alone in the mayor's parlour. 
I knew how to reach the Mayor's Parlour unobserved. The secret of which Dr. Pellery has just told you was also known to me. I discovered the passage between St. Lawrence Tower and the Moot Hall many years ago, and I determined to get at Wallingford by way of that passage. About seven o'clock in the evening on which Wallingford was murdered, I called at Spizey's cottage in St. Lawrence Churchyard, and got the keys of the church from him, on the excuse that I wanted to copy an inscription. I locked myself into the church, and went up to the chamber in the tower. I spent some little time there, considering the details of my plan of campaign, before going along the secret passage. It would be about half-past seven, perhaps more, when I last slipped open the panel and crossed over to the moot hall. The panel at the other end of the passage, which admits to the mayor's parlour, is the fifth one on the left-hand side of that room. I undid it very cautiously and silently. There was then no one in the parlour. All was silent. I looked through the crack of the panel. There was no one in the place at all. Incidentally, I may mention that when I thus took an observation of the parlour, I noticed that on an old oak chest, standing by the wainscoting, and immediately behind the mayor's chair and desk, lay the rapier which was produced at the inquest, and with which he undoubtedly was killed. I suddenly heard the handle of the door into the corridor turn, then Wallingford's voice. I slipped the panel back till it was nearly closed, and stood with my ear against it, listening. Wallingford was not alone, he had a woman with him, and I made out, in their first exchange of words, that he had met her in the corridor just outside the door of the mayor's parlour, and that they were quarrelling and both in high temper. I stop, exclaimed the chairman, lifting his hand, as an excited murmur began to run round the court. Silence! If there is any interruption... Now, he went on, turning to Crevin, you say you heard Mr. Wallingford come back into the mayor's parlour, and that he was accompanied by a woman with whom he was having high words. Did you see this woman? No, I saw neither her nor Wallingford. I only heard their voices. Did you recognize her voice as that of any woman you knew? I did, unmistakably. I knew quite well who she was. Who was she, then? Crevin shook his head. For the moment, wait, he replied. Let me tell my tale in my own way. To resume, I say they, she and Wallingford, were having high words. I could tell, for instance, that he was in a temper which I should call furious. I overheard all that was said. He was wanting to know, as they entered the room, how she had got there. She replied that she had watched Mrs. Bunning out of her house from amongst the bushes in St. Lawrence churchyard, and had then slipped in at Bunning's back door, being absolutely determined to see him. Wallingford answered that she would get no good by waylaying him, he had found her out and was done with her. She was an impostor, an adventuress. She had come to the end of her tether. She then demanded some letters, her letters. There were excited words about this from each, and it was not easy to catch all that was said. At times they were both speaking together. But she got into a clear demand at last. Was he or was he not going to hand those letters over? He said no, he was not. They were going to remain in his possession as a hold over her. 
she was a danger to the community with her plottings and underhand ways and he intended to show certain of those letters to others there was more excited wrangling over this i heard dr wellesley's name mentioned then mallet's i also heard some reference which i couldn't make head or tail of to money and documents in the midst of all this wallingford suddenly told her to go he had had enough of it and had his work to attend to once more she demanded the letters he answered with a very peremptory negative then i heard a sound as of his chair being pulled up to his desk followed by a brief silence then all of a sudden i heard another sound half cry half groan and a sort of dull thud as if something had fallen a moment later as i was wondering what had happened and what to do i heard the door which opens into the corridor close gently and at that i pushed back the panel and looked into the mayor's parlour it seemed to brent that every soul in that place from the grey-haired chairman on the bench to the stolid-faced official by the witness-box was holding his breath and that every eye was fastened on Crevin Crood with an irresistible fascination. There was a terrible silence in the court as Crevin paused, terminated by an involuntary sigh of relief as he made signs of speaking again. And in that instant Brent saw Mrs. Elstrick, the tall, gaunt woman of whom he had heard at least one mysterious piece of news from Hawthwaite, quietly slip out of her place near the outer door and vanish he saw too that no one but himself saw her go so absorbed were all the others in what was coming when i saw what i did see continued krevin in a low concentrated tone i went in the mayor was lying across his desk still quiet i touched his shoulder and got blood on my fingers i knew then what had happened the woman had snatched up that rapier and run him through. I pulled out my handkerchief, the handkerchief I had taken from Mallet's drawer, wiped my hand and threw the handkerchief in the fire. Then I took up a mass of papers and a memorandum book which Wallingford had laid down and went away by the passage. And that's the plain truth. I should never have told it if I hadn't been arrested. I care nothing at all that Wallingford was killed by this woman, not I. I shouldn't have cared if she'd gone scot-free, but if it's going to be my neck or hers, well, I prefer it to be hers, and there you are. Once again, said the chairman, who was this woman? Crevin Crood might have been answering the most casual of casual questions. Who, he replied, why, Mrs. Saumarez. End of chapter 24